Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest in this episode is Michael Cassetta. Michael has held several high-level sales roles at companies like Square, Compass, his own company, his current role as CRO of Paxos, and through it all has become an expert in designing and managing sales teams. This was a fantastic conversation about all things sales and building sales teams, and is one I will be re-listening to several times over the coming years. While a large portion of Michael's time has been spent in very large sales organizations, the principles he talks about are still widely applicable in companies of any size, and all regular listeners to this podcast are in for a treat. Michael and I talk about writing high-value sales contracts, the growing importance of high-performing sales operations, how sales has become more data-driven, more quantitative, how to recruit for sales, and the leadership of sales. One final note before the episode, I want to meet more sales professionals, especially in data and data software. If you or someone you know have expertise in data enterprise sales, I would love the chance to connect. You can find me on my website, alexbridgman.com, LinkedIn, Twitter, or send me an email directly at alex.e.bridgman at gmail.com. Thank you. I look forward to chatting soon. And now to my episode with Michael Cassetta. Today's sponsor Q&A is with Oakborn Advisors, an independent retirement plan consulting firm that helps small companies design and implement great retirement plans for their teams. Vice President Matt Reba joins me today. What are some of the most common issues that small businesses run into with retirement plans? So I think there's a handful of common issues that 401k plan sponsors face, but I'll just talk about two of them today. The first one is the fiduciary risk that the owner of a company or the plan trustee assumes as they start offering a 401k plan to employees. I think that a lot of owners and plan sponsors aren't aware that they're assuming that fiduciary risk by offering the plan, and then it's a risk that they cannot unencumber themselves of. They can hire 401k consultants and other service providers to spread their risk around, but ultimately, they're responsible to the employees to make sure that the 401k plan that they're offering is compliant, functions properly, and that it's in line with the competitive cost and services that are available in the industry. Another commonly overlooked issue for employers offering a 401k plan is simply taking advantage of the competition in the marketplace. What we see as consultants is that a lot of employers will set up a plan, and as long as that plan is functioning properly, the payroll is working and people can get onto the website to view their accounts, they kind of just don't touch it again. The problem with that is that these 401k providers or the record keepers, that's the company that you see on the website when you go to access your account or on your, on your statement. The third party administrators, that's the company who helps you with your annual testing or filing if you're 5,500. And the mutual fund providers or the investment service providers, that's the investment companies or the options available within the 401k are all in a constant state of flux and competition with each other. And as the consumer, that competition is good for you. It's good for you in terms of pricing and additional services. So I think a lot of plan sponsors don't know that the competition on the side of the business is that fierce. And they aren't aware of how much has changed over the last three, five, 10 years in the 401k plan space. And they're not taking advantage of that opportunity. So that's another common unknown challenge that 401k sponsors encounter. So offering a 401k plan is table stakes for most employers today, and it's worth having an expert on your team to make sure that that benefit doesn't become an administrative burden. Oakborn Advisors is a registered investment advisor. Registration is not an endorsement by securities regulators and does not imply that Oakborn Advisors has attained a certain level of skill, training, or ability. 
This does not constitute personalized advice or solicitation to execute specific securities transactions. The potential benefit of Oakborn Advisors services will vary depending on the client's individual circumstances. If you're interested in a complimentary benchmark of a company's 401k plan, head to oakborn.com think or contact Matt directly at mryba at oakborn.com. I also want to thank our other show sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, and Overly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I think to start off the episode, it'd be great to hear a little bit about your background. You've had a bunch of different really interesting roles at at Square and Compass and now Paxos. There's tons to dive into in each of those, but can you give us a kind of a couple minute overview of your career to this point? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll run it backwards. So <clears throat> currently Chief Revenue Officer of Paxos, uh, blockchain infrastructure company, really just doing our best to connect the traditional financial world with with the future world of blockchain through a set of APIs and helping customers tokenize real world assets. And as you can imagine, the blockchain world is quite rife these days with its own challenges and uncertainties and market dynamics and macro factors and regulatory factors. So probably the most complex environment I've worked in and worked with incredibly large, complicated customers as well. Prior was was the chief commercial officer and chief strategy officer of Compass, the real estate tech company responsible for agent revenue, as well as growing a lot of our secondary products, so our home services product, a lending product, and eventually kind of the the budding sets of our title, mortgage, and escrow divisions from scratch. So acted more like a GM there than a pure revenue person, but it was an interesting experience for sure to understand kind of very diverse world of, of real estate agents and regulated market across different states and definitely a different shift from where I was before that, which was Square, the payments technology company that's obviously grown quite a bit over the years from a little point of sale and a little credit card reader you plug into your phone to now a very broad suite of point of sale payments and peer-to-peer and lending products and many other products that they've bolted on across the years. And I ran all global sales there. Uh, So sales partnerships, business development, and expanded that company from a barely public $3 billion business. And when I left, we were almost about $55 billion. They, they peaked over $150 billion at some point last couple of years. Before that was vice president of sales and marketing for a small software company in New York City called Structured Web, selling marketing automation software. And prior to that, ran my own business for over nine years, really teaching people how to sell and had my life, really my professional life built in sales and learned through sales and have grown to diversify it since. But that's the that's the trajectory to get me where I am now. And then there's tons of different roles and industries you've worked in through all those different uh, experiences. Are there any common threads that you've learned or principles you've, you've adopted over time as a result of each of those experiences? Yeah, I mean, they've been at so many different stages that I think the industry actually becomes less relevant. It's almost where is the business, what's it trying to do, and how does it try to get its its customers? How does it generate revenue? I, I think the, the commonalities are, number one, solve problems at scale. Try not to have to solve the same problem more than once and stress test every idea of like, when does this break and how does it break and start to think ahead so that your your business is very agile and flexible versus being brittle. Because as it grows, you don't want growth to be the enemy of your success and you certainly don't want to be afraid of it. The second is really is pricing, funny enough, which is like 
Don't be afraid to charge a lot of money. I remember the first hundred thousand dollar contract I signed. I'm like, who's? I'm like, this is a lot of money. Like, who's thinking about paying a hundred grand? Whereas it's not their money; it's their company's money. And and all of a sudden, you charge more, and people pay more. And there's this conflation of of price and quality that people have. So it's something I I've kind of stuck with me. The third, which is probably the most universal, which is finding the right leaders around you. Well, first of all, work for the right leader, right? Make sure you really respect the people above you and can learn from those people. Find a, a peer set within the company that you really can work with and collaborate well with. But for your own teams, hiring people who complement you and being very aware of your weaknesses and your, and your strengths, but leverage people around you for your weaknesses and double down on your own strengths and, and really manage and work through people. Everything happens and, and starts and ends with human capital inside of a business. And I don't think that ever changes. And I said, probably the last point is find industries you really enjoy and spaces that you want to be a nerd in. You don't want to be in an industry where you don't want to learn extra. Like you want to kind of keep yourself up late at night and get excited to hear news in the morning and track innovation. And if you don't have that, that's, that's a challenging place to really get the best version of yourself. I want to dive into actually pricing and sales contracts a little bit. That's an idea that's been kind of top of mind for me recently. What are some principles you've learned about building valuable sales contracts? There's an episode we did a little while ago with these two entrepreneurs from Austin who bought a landscaping business and they effect, they went to a competitor or not competitor, an acquirer, and just asked like, what in our sales contracts would make our company more valuable and then just took that playbook. And there's like things like price escalators that they did and a whole bunch of other things. But when when you go to build a high value sales contract, what types of structuring and terms do you use in that contract to make it more valuable for you and potentially for the customer too? It depends what stage you're at and what you're trying to show. So for example, if you're an early stage business and you're raising money and you're in a, a very challenging VC environment like you are now, front-loading cash is going to be much more important. And you may be willing to give a discount to get cash in the door so that you could push the window out of time for when you may have to raise money. That's a very selfish thing of the business, but it's probably important for sustainability and longevity of that business. I would say second, if you're trying to show lifetime value and you're trying to show that you have these long, predictable revenue cycles and revenue streams coming in, then elongating. How do I get this customer to commit to two, three, four, five years and make it worthwhile for the person today to be able to make that decision? And some companies will not allow someone to sign a two-plus-year or three-plus-year deal. But that's a big one. The third is on a tactical level, make sure that all pricing is, is mutually beneficial in the sense that you really want to benefit from their growing, but they should also be very excited to grow. So make sure that you understand the unit economics on their side of how you're pricing. Because if you price something to a place where they're afraid of growth on their side, well, they're going to be looking to replace you at every step, or they're going to need to replace you at every step because at some point, they just may not be able to pay you. There's a, a, a podcast that I heard a long time ago about a, a very large customer of Stripe. And the person's comment was, Stripe built a product I needed. It built a product I couldn't get off of, but it built a product that I never wanted to get off of. And I was like, that's such an interesting concept of... I can't do without this product embedded in my ecosystem, 
but they've also built it in a way where I can continue to grow and the unit economics don't get worse over time. So it really depends what you're trying to accomplish at that stage of your business. But I would say all pricing should look mutually beneficial and neither side should be afraid of the other side growing very aggressively because that that should be a win-win. And I don't think enough people approach contracts that way. Yeah, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but building a pricing matrix for different size companies with different enterprise products is sounds like more of an art than a science. And there's there's some founders I've gotten to know who have built these matrices for enterprise software and they they've refined it for years and they still don't feel like they've really nailed it. Are there any good processes or strategies you've developed for kind of finding that right pricing matrix arrangement? You have to be willing to ask the questions on their side of how their how this price fits into their margins. And some will be willing to share, some will not, but that insight and just knowing where this cost is being applied is really critical to being able to understand how they're going to view this in the long term. And what what are they going to be willing to do in the short term to even get this product in, get this contract or whatever it is off the ground, especially when you're in a world of adoption or consumption economics where there may be some different shaped price curve that happens based on how much they grow or how much they use. Those are becoming much more common as well. I've found customers want some level of predictability, right? They want to have certainty around what they know they're going to pay for a certain time. But then they also want to be able to say and how to model the upside and downside around that. So walking them through some of these different kind of thought patterns is really critical and like seeing how they react and getting their reaction on their side of what would happen if and almost building these scenarios in place for yourself. But really, you're walking them through what are they going to say and what are they going to do when they hit these scenarios so that they're not shocked or they're not kind of hitting a wall when that does happen. Another aspect is to ask, like, how, how long are you able to sign a deal for? And getting kind of that maximum threshold or finding out what is their upper bound for dollars that they're able to get signed off for. Because sometimes you want quick transactions. Sometimes you want it to be on the CFO's desk because you need that level of visibility and you want it to be that sticky. So you want to handle those objections as early as possible so that the CFO doesn't come in eight months later and just take a hatchet to the agreement and say, well, it's nothing. It's either this or nothing. Those type of catastrophic scenarios you want to be able to avoid at all costs, not just because they look bad, but they again, they don't put customer vendor relationships on a partnership plane, which is where they should be. And if you're constantly being looked at as just a supplier, well, eventually with all suppliers, you're looking to squeeze them. And that's not, again, that's not a positive scenario to be in either side. So trying to get ahead of those conversations and those questions. And last is know, just know when their budget cycles are or when their purchasing cycles are, because that can really dictate when they have guaranteed money that has to be spent. And if they don't spend it, they might not ever get it again, or they might not get the budget next year. So if you don't get it in then, you may get nothing from them. And when you're in a macro environment like we're in now, where people are really starting to shore up their financial defenses and firm up their balance sheets, that if that money is available, you're going to want to do something with it. And it's a lot easier to convince a CFO and an accounting team to extend a contract versus to sign something brand new in an uncertain environment. So getting ahead of those aspects, I think, is really critical to anything on the revenue management side of sales or, or partnerships. Yeah, you talked about finding a, a price that was kind of 
a good fit both for your business, but also for them. Is there, I was listening to this episode with a superhuman founder, Rahul Vora on Acquired. And he was talking about a couple different questions that he asked, or he asked customers over a long period of time to kind of refine where their pricing was going to be. And it's not, it's not, superhuman isn't a enterprise software product necessarily, but the principles are pretty interesting to think about. Are there any questions you go into a conversation with a customer with to find out where that optimum pricing is, where you're you're not like charging way too much, but you're also making sure you have value on your side? You have to know where the market is. You also may be in a position where there is no market and, and people are pricing kind of in a very nascent, very nebulous space. I think a lot of AI is in that world right now, <clears throat> especially more on the generative side. There's a lot of a lot of stuff in our space of blockchain that's brand new. So there's no playbook, there's no historical. So you have to then give some level of perspective to the customer of like, hey, we can't go below this because of whatever, or here's where we're angling to be because on our side, we need that to be able to continue to invest in this product. And again, if it's a partnership, there should be like a very clear acceptance that, that the, they want us to continue to invest because they're going to benefit from that. But I would ask them how their, their company looks at, at pricing. Is it based on total dollar amount? Is it based on term? Is it based on, based on monthly cost? How do they feel about consumption-based pricing and the level of unpredictability to that, but where they may actually get a better deal, but the, the revenues and the costs will be less predictable? Will they be marking the product up internally or sending it out or selling it into a different set of customers? And therefore, what type of margin do they need to maintain in that if it's an infrastructure product like our current one? One thing that we did quite often at Square was just to try to ask the very simple question. And this was mostly to SMBs and mid-market, which is like, what, what would enable you or what would prompt you to make a change? Right? Because change costs money, it costs time. So is it savings or is it revenue opportunity? So that's another thing to know is, is this product being viewed as something that makes their business more efficient or helps them cut costs? Or is this a revenue driver and a revenue opportunity? And I've found that when a customer's in the mindset of revenue growth, it's much more likely to get them to be flexible on how they think about pricing versus when they're in cost cutting or optimization mode where they may be locked in hitting a specific metric. And if you don't know those things, you're just shooting blind. And you don't want to shoot blind with pricing because eventually you may hit the wrong target or you may sell against yourself or negotiate against yourself or you may scare the crap out of a customer and they're like, well, we can never partner with this company. This will never work. And they don't realize it, but they've subconsciously tuned you out. Taking a, a step back, one thing you've talked about a lot is that a sales operations team has grown in importance over time. Do, have you seen kind of an evolution of how sales teams are viewed as companies and perhaps how that is? how that team is now a more important piece of a company now? Is that kind of a, a trend you've observed? Yeah, I, I think the big catalyst there is data and access to data. <clears throat> and, you know, it goes back 25 years to the advent of Salesforce and really even the advent of the, the, you know, the first Siebel CRM and even what airlines were doing in the 60s and 70s. The, the growth of data has gone from just what's embedded in the back end of a mainframe to now it's accessible on your laptop or on Slack or other areas that are, that are just incredibly accessible and easy to digest. So what are you doing with those data? What are you doing to make your sales process more optimized? What are you doing to better target? How are you using marketing 
analytics and marketing data to better target spend so that you're not just throwing billboards up and Super Bowl ads, as many companies have done for decades. That's not a very precision-driven approach. Sales used to be a world that was very persona-driven. It was about charisma and convincing and being very persuasive and the wine and dine six martini dinner to get someone to, to sign on the dotted line. I mean, this is not 1970 anymore. Sales is much more about information. It's about problem solving. And it's about helping customers see that the solution you're offering does what they want to do. Again, does it cut my cost? Does it drive revenue? Does it open up a new market? Does it solve a regulatory problem? What, what does it do? And there's so much information available publicly about every company and every product that they don't need the salesperson to go educate them. They could do that on a website in 10 seconds. So what does a salesperson do? It's about, again, showing optimization. It's about showing revenue opportunities. So you need data, you need examples, you need case studies, you need stories that are backed with real numbers. What does a sales operations function do? It consolidates all that information into a central neurological system that all teams can operate from. You can build automation from that. You can, again, score leads through that. You can trigger demand gen campaigns based on signals in the market. You can signal to a salesperson, hey, this person is uh, engaging with this content that we put out there. You should reach out to this person. They're, they're a warm contact at this point. So it becomes the nervous system through which all types of insights and information get processed to then, again, hopefully make your entire go-to-market process more effective. And that's the goal across the board. Get more revenue for less marketing spend and sales spend and get more productivity from every headcount you put into any one of these roles. And that's what a sales ops team, I think, does very well. And with the data available everywhere now, that's more possible than ever before. Is there any particular data set you can think of that has had the most impact on a sales team and, and that whole evolution process so far? I, I think there's, there are probably two. Depends on what type of business you are and like what type of, of customer acquisition channels are yours. But if you go to a sales-driven model where there's again demand gen and leads and human beings talking to those, those leads, if you look at that model, the biggest gain in efficiency and optimization is around lead scoring and what's called lead readiness. And this is where you get to the, the nomenclature of marketing qualified lead and sales accepted lead and a sales qualified lead where you're able to measure each of these steps and you're able to determine, well, where did this lead come from and how did it get here? And make sure that salespeople are speaking to the right customers at the right time. That's a very critical part of making a sales team more effective. Otherwise, you're just going to spend a lot of time and money on people who are not really driving a return. If you look at kind of a more modern channel, which is a product acquisition channel or a, a self-onboarded channel, which is a lot of self-serve and kind of consumer products that are consumer acquired through some form of technology or portal or sign up or app download, that's much more about analytics. And you look at like advertising analytics and where are people clicking? Where are they dropping out in the onboarding flow? How do we optimize that? Where are they coming from? Okay, well, that channel is giving us a lot of interest, but not a lot of conversion. This channel is giving us a lot of conversion, but not a lot of interest. So how do we map those two and, and kind of get insights from each? And all of a sudden, you build a very optimized funnel. 
you tend to have a lot more data in a consumer acquisition strategy that way than you would on a, a sales driven because the, the numbers tend to be smaller and the sales cycles tend to be longer. So it's a lot around lead scoring, lead analytics, but then the very granular level of data that you get on marketing campaigns and demand gen on the consumer side, you know, are also incredibly helpful uh, to again make sure that by the time someone's either in the onboarding flow or speaking to a salesperson, that they're highly likely to convert. But again, it's how do you get them there in an effective, kind of really prescribable way so that you can then rinse and repeat that and then test new channels and new acquisition strategies as well. What do you think are some of the biggest differences between a large sales org and something, a sales org that's maybe less than 50 people? It sounds like data could be part of it, the use of data, but are there other aspects within organization or structure or process that you see most often missed at 50, 50 and below that they could be doing or should be doing? Could or should is, is tough. But what I would say is that you tend to have sales organizations grow horizontally, and then they grow vertically. And by horizontally, what I mean is they tend to do more aspects of the sales cycle when they're smaller. They, they not only, quote unquote, close the deal, they're very often helping with implementation and onboarding. And they may even be the account managers throughout the whole life cycle until you build a separate function over there. So I think horizontal in terms of a lifetime. And as a team grows, you then can start to specialize more and more. And each team tends to do better because they own a very specific set of data points and they own a very specific part of the life cycle of that customer. The other is verticalization where there may be this giant world that you could go tackle, but they're covering every industry, they're covering every customer type, every customer size. So as a team grows, you also want to specialize there. Someone focused on healthcare, someone focused on, I don't know, aviation or transportation, or maybe geographically based specialization. The more salespeople specialize, the more effective they tend to be. The challenge is you need to have enough volume there to sustain that. You need to have enough data there to know that you can actually win that vertical, that you have some advantage in that vertical. Otherwise, you're just ending up creating complexity where there probably isn't any. The two things I've seen sales teams mess up as they go through these transitions, um, they don't adapt their variable pay fast enough. They tend to be either too aggressive or too conservative on the commission side, or like give the upside component of total compensation, and they don't adjust those over time. The second is they don't have a very clear quota strategy. Um, there are some companies that build quota for 100% attainment. We want 100% of people to attain at 100% because that's like a perfect world. There are others that actually want less than 100% to attain but they want the ones who attain to significantly over-attain. So you end up having a skewed distribution, but you end up having a smaller set of very, very high performers and then kind of a wider range of mid and lower performers. And there are very different reasons to go in both those directions. You know, not one is right or wrong, but it's important to have that strategy and not just to kind of set these things haphazardly. Uh, otherwise, you won't be hiring the right people. You won't be setting them up with the right expectations. You won't be measuring them properly. And it's often the incentives of that team may not be aligned with the long-term incentives of the company. Can we dive into that a little bit more? Like, How do you go about setting sales goals? And what's, what's your own philosophy for attainment, as you, as you put it? Again, in a perfect world. <clears throat> so a couple of companies back, it was 100% at 100%. Kind of we used to call the perfect crosshair. 
we had a big enough team and enough data to really be able to do that. Now, what that means at the end of the day is that if someone's not attaining, that there's like a, they're, they're underperforming, right? Versus having this distribution where not everyone attains, but the ones who do overattain. Why that matters is because you end up having a much more, we'll call it like democratic with a low D type approach to how you hire and how you train versus having like your key set of mercenaries that you really put on your strategic accounts that are meant to be the highest beta individuals you have, meaning they're going to go after the highest upside, even if it means sometimes they miss their, their quota. You may do that if you have a very, very specific sale or very specific product with a smaller subset of companies you're targeting. That's why you would tend to go in that direction. But when you're looking at setting quota and setting target, what's the point of a sales organization? It's to generate a specific dollar amount for the company. That dollar amount should be pegged to either an ROI or a payback period that the company itself is setting forth to hit. Whether it be, hey, we want all spend to be paid back in 12 to 16 months, or we want to bring on customers with a lifetime value that's a 3 or 4x ROI on the cost to acquire those customers. So it's important to get those questions answered first. And that's usually led by the CFO or the CEO or the board or a combination of them to know what are we trying to target in this business. And then you set your quota from there. You know, if the team is set to, to deliver X dollars, well, how many people are on the team? You divide it out by how many people carry quota. And then those people also have to carry enough revenue to pay for the supporting teams that are necessary to employ those quota carriers, whether it be sales enablement, sales ops, sales managers, whatever. And you have to really account for all those details. And then you have to set another layer below that, which is what is the, the marketing support cost right, to generating this form of, of revenue. Demand gen itself, brand advertising, comms, PR, software, you know, whatever that might be. And then you look at like your straight line cost of acquisition and then your burdened cost of acquisition to generate, to figure out what is my cost that I'm trying to multiply to get to that ROI. And that's an exercise we would go about every year on setting sales plans and eventually proving headcount uh, below that. And of course, each head generates a certain amount of, of revenue as part of their quota and making sure that those numbers feel and look attainable based on whatever data you have. If salespeople start a job or start a year and the quotas seem unattainable, they will subconsciously check out. And then it's only a matter of time before they truly check out when they realize that a significant part of their income will be unattainable. And you also mentioned the, the horizontal expansion over time. Do you, have, do you have a sense for trigger points for when you separate off different parts of the sale process? with a potential customer into own into their own individual teams? The, the obvious trigger points are when you're either churning customers because they're not getting the post-sale time and opportunity that they need you know, to, uh, to maintain them, or you have a, a very, very deep bucket of leads that are not being spoken to because those salespeople are, are spending their time on, on post-sale. So those are the obvious ones. Somewhere in the middle you're going to have just this world of life cycle management and, and kind of looking at what is the lifetime of a customer look like? When do they need the most time? And when do we get the most return on that time? Because you also don't want to turn your salespeople in, into customer support. So it's not just when do you need account management, it's when do they need support? When do they get support? What type of support do they get? And, and something that we've done in the past is actually block customers from even directly connecting or communicating 
with salespeople if we deem there to be a better place you know, for those types of support or ongoing account management inquiries to go. So it really depends where you are in your life cycle and what dollar is worth more to you. Is it a dollar of net new customer or is it a dollar of extra revenue from an existing customer? And again, that really depends where you are in your business. But those first two triggers are usually the pretty obvious ones to be, to be at least alerted of because there's an opportunity cost at that point. Whereas maybe before that, you're just assuming. But when you see leads build up or churn start to spike, unless that churn is caused by another factor you can point to, you probably need to address it with people because to retain revenue is also worth something to you. So putting humans on that to do that may be a better ROI than ignoring the churn. Yeah. Do you have a different view for incentives for renewals of existing customers or upsells versus new customers? Do you have a diff, do you have different structures and incentives for each or are they fairly similar? No, typically they're very different. It's usually also a very different person, you know, who's uh what you'll hear called hunters and farmers. Hunters looking for net new, new logos, new customers, right? They want to be chasing, bring the person in for the first time, cross the finish line with them. That you tend to see a higher incentive split meaning a higher percentage of their total compensation, which is based on performance. On the renewal side, there's a level of predictability to it. There's a level of like project management and customer relationship building versus selling. There is still some sales there. I don't want to impugn the role in any way. It's a very critical role to fill, but it does tend to be easier to get an extra dollar from an existing customer versus getting an extra dollar from a brand new customer. So they have to be trained differently. They have to be comped differently. And you also tend to hire very different people into each of those roles. Yeah, can we dive into that? We've we've talked about the the data side and some of the numbers and process behind this, but it's obviously a very human-focused endeavor. What types of different personalities or sets of characteristics are good fits for various roles within sales? Like, Do you have a couple different buckets of people that you tend to seek out to fill different parts of your sales team? If you're in a world where it's a complex product or it's a new industry, where I find myself in a couple of those along the way, I think you almost have to hire for curiosity. You have to hire more generalists than, than people with a specific set of expertise that might not be relevant in this new world or this new paradigm. Sometimes you even find that people with certain experience are, are bad for a role because they, they carry all these suppositions and all these past ways of doing things. But meanwhile, the company you're in is actually trying to disrupt the exact industry right, that they're coming from. So that, that mapping doesn't always work. Yes, they understand the lingo. They understand the, the personas and who's in the industry, but they don't understand how to actually go now bring a new technology forth uh, to go solve that. So what type of persona is good at solving it? Well, someone who's, again, going to ask a ton of questions, someone who really wants to learn something new and someone who can learn very quickly. I love generalists in the sense that they can bounce their brains to different sectors and different customer types and customer sizes in different geographies. And that allows them to be more versatile as a sales organization will start to morph over time. A, a go-to-market team has to be probably the most agile team in the company because they can pivot faster than a product team can and certainly faster than an engineering team can. And that pivot is important because you got to be able to pay attention to the changes in the space. So salespeople are much more about listening to what's out there and again, prescribing a solution that solves a problem. 
But if you can't listen to what's out there and you can't put the pieces together to form a picture, then you're actually not solving anything. You're just spewing information that someone could read on a website. So that ability to figure out what's the shape and size of a key that will turn this lock. So again, people ask a lot of questions. People will have that natural hunger and desire to, to bring on something net new. People who also want to spend time talking. There are plenty of, of introverts and extroverts who actually don't like to talk to other people. And that's probably not going to be a good fit for sales. And I think you get a pretty good glimpse of that when you speak to someone briefly in an interview. It's like, is this a natural dialogue or is this forced? Is this being coerced in some way because they think they have to do it? And over time, those things tend to tease themselves out. So a natural social personality doesn't hurt. And by the way, some of my best salespeople of all time have been like pure introverts. Being an introvert doesn't mean you can't be a good salesperson. It may be the opposite because maybe they're incredible at listening and incredible at finding those nuanced ways of delivering information that that customer really needs and wants to hear. That's just as valuable as someone who's garrulous and affable and, and loves to get out there and, and drink beers with a customer. Both sides can be you know, incredibly valuable. And how do those characteristics you look for shift when you're looking for someone, a, a management role within your sales team? Is there different sets of characteristics and personality that you're looking for? Like how much overlap is there between that person talking to customers directly versus that, that management layer? There, there tends to be a Venn diagram, right? And the two circles you tend to have in, in really good salespeople <clears throat> as individual contributors is that you have like the master tacticians who build like a very strategic project plan and they know what they're going to do when and what they're going to send when and how they're going to do it. That level of strategic planning, you tend to see much more common in the enterprise world, but you do see it more in the organizational and project management sense in the SMB world as well. So it's one thing to be hyper-organized and strategic. It's another thing to be able to teach someone how to do just that. So the other part of the Venn diagram is someone who's good at training and someone who's good at sharing. So giving individual contributors the opportunity to impact others, to run a training, to run a masterclass, to, to give a webinar, to do a lunch and learn on a certain topic, to see, number one, is this a fit? Does this person actually enjoy this? And number two, how do they convey information that is sitting in their brains and a level of expertise? Can they transfer that? So if you can find someone who has both those worlds overlapping, you've got, a, in my world, you've got an amazing manager. Right? Now, the other side of this is actually management, which is you have two extremes in the spectrum. Right, You've got your drill sergeant on one side, do this, do that, and it's my way or the highway. And on the other side, you have a therapist who's solely there to make people feel better. That Most sales managers cannot live in either of those buckets. The drill sergeant persona is much more effective for junior roles where there's a very prescribed process, which also means you need to have a mature predictable, tested sales process where if you do A, you get B. If you don't have that, that drill sergeant falls on deaf ears because half the stuff they tell them to do makes no sense. On the other side, uh, the listener and the, the therapist is actually really important when you're exploring something new, where there's a lot of unknown, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of changing dynamics. But again, you can't live there forever because if people feel great and they're not delivering, well, you all get fired because rule number one, a sales team is generate revenue. So you have to be somewhere in between and knowing where on the spectrum you need people depends on the maturity of the organization, the predictability of your revenue channels and your go-to-market strategy, the, the need to be able to grow people 
in a role. Again, you can grow someone through drill sergeant techniques, but they're going to generally grow up to be more drill sergeants. So is that what you want to need? Or do you, again, need more of the listener and the, the people manager to really coerce, not coerce, but to massage the individual into being in the right mindset to go solve the problems that that industry may face? And you tend to see that in a lot of like either highly regulated spaces where there's a lot of third rails that you can touch and, and get burned on or in a space that may be coming under a ton of, of macro pressure. I can imagine the mortgage industry is dealing with that right now. The crypto space is dealing with that to some extent. All the fintechs are dealing with that. So again, where you are really depends. Pick the spots in the matrix and you'll find the right sell. And building that matrix for your business, I think, is actually really important. Are there any helpful questions or interview styles that you take on for kind of figuring out which which persona this person that you're interviewing is, and then would they be a good fit for your company at your stage? There are two that are pretty basic, but for me at least have been universal, which is number one, tell me what you're outstanding at. And I don't mean good, like I could, I could see your strengths, like, and I can see what you've done, but like, tell me what you're truly outstanding at. And, and then the question is, why are you outstanding at it? How did you get there? And what comes out of that is generally desire of where they spend their time. It's very hard to be outstanding. It's something accidentally, right? Unless you're a prodigy or Einstein or whatever, it's very hard to be accidentally outstanding. So I want to know where do they spend their time? What motivates them to spend their time there? What are the feedback mechanisms that keep them recharged in that space? And you tend to get that when you focus on, on just the simplistic of what are you outstanding at? There's also a converse question, which is what are you terrible at? And, and tell me why you're terrible at it and tell me why you don't want to get better at it. That's okay. There are many things I'm terrible at. And there are many things I'm terrible at that I have no interest in getting better at, right? But why, right? Again, and you just keep going through the whys and you really learn a lot about people. The second is about management style. And there's no right or wrong style, even in the two extreme worlds we just talked about. But what I want to come out from a management style is that it's not about the manager. It's about the people in front of them. What does my salesperson want? What does my team need? How do I help them get better? How do I teach them more? How do I make them more confident? How do I build their, their confidence in themselves? How do I get them more, more independent and more autonomous to be able to figure things out on their own? If the manager comes back with spoon feeding and just handing them answers, that, that's going to get you very, very small gains and definitely non-sustainable gains because those people end up then dependent on that manager. And the one thing you're constantly trying to do is to develop independent, autonomous leaders at every level. And those are just some of the proxies of how you get there. And again, there's no right or wrong answer to the business, but knowing what you want, knowing what your own strengths and weaknesses are and who has to complement you around the org, I think you lead you to where the answers are to those questions that you probably want to hear. Another concept I know you've talked a lot about is the integration with sales and product. And you alluded to it a little bit earlier where that, that your sales team is actively discussing or talking about your products with customers and getting constant feedback on a daily basis. What are some best practices you've discovered for making sure that sales and product are communicating and working together? If you look at history, right, especially in tech companies, the sales teams were, were left on an island, right? They were personas non grata uh, to a technical team because sales teams have a history and a tendency of my customer needs this, we got to build this. And they're thinking very narrow. They're thinking about their own deal or their own customer type or their own quota. 
they're not thinking holistically about a platform or about a global solution. And that's morphed for the better over time as, as A, as tech companies have become more prevalent, but as even sales teams have kind of taken on a very different role in tech companies, which is to be the voice of the market. And Jack Dorsey at Square used to say, the sales team is the voice of the future customer, right? That's a really important place to say, because to be, because it means you actually are seeing the future, right? And you might not be right in every time, but in the aggregate, you should get some level of truth of where this business is going, or at least where the market is going. It's critical now more than ever, as these teams have come closer together, for there to be a constant two-way street of information. From the sales side, here's what we're seeing and hearing from the product side. Here's how we think about doing this at scale. Here's how we think about solving the next set of problems that customers don't even know they're going to face because that's, that's what product people tend to be really good at is being able to see, again, where does the shape bend? Where does the curve no longer hold? Where do certain things break? And that two-way street is critical. And I think if you have one and not the other, you're either going to build a product in a silo that actually won't map to the market or on the sales side, if you're too much there, you're just going to keep building one-off point solutions or keep building one-off uh, bespoke products that will never scale into platforms. And I think the reason these groups are coming together is the advent of platforms. You know, Platforms are more viable and possible today from a technical perspective than they were 10 and 20 years ago. So you tend to see more things that have to be solved at scale, more markets that you won't want to solve just for that market. You want to solve for that market plus the next adjacent market and constantly mapping where these markets start to touch so that product can get an idea of where it can go next. And salespeople have to really build the muscle of how to speak to product and engineering and to transfer information in a, in a really objective way. And then product and engineering, I think, need to be really good at figuring out from a sales team, how do we shape and mold all this data and information into a place that gives us true insight about where a market is going? Are there any communication methods you've found that work really well for facilitating that back and forth? Is that some sort of weekly or monthly meeting or uh, uh, some place where ideas and feedback from customers is shared with a product team? Like, like on a technical kind of tactical basis, how do you get that information across to each side? The simplest way from the ground up is that all the data should be accessible in a central place at all times at any time for either side to be able to go get. So is all that information sitting in Salesforce? Now it's going to sit there passively, right? No one's going to do anything with it, but at least it's there. So if people do start to query around, they can find it. The next layer up is kind of at the, at the aggregate level, having some level of readout on a quarterly, monthly, whatever the right cadence is for your company. Here's what we saw last month. Here's what we saw last quarter. Here's what's important. Here's what we're asking for. Here's where our gaps are. But that's a curated view. And I think the curated view does cut corners in some places, right? It's the definition of curation, right? You're, you're, you're seeing the whole wide buffet and you're saying, we're only going to eat this, right? So there's some bias to that, but nonetheless, it is valuable. I think the third layer is what's happening kind of on a more tactical, more frequent level. And at Square, we use something called a DRI program. A DRI was a directly responsible individual. It's really, it was a, it was a liaison. And instead of having... 300 salespeople sending over feedback and comments and requests to the product team every week. Well, each product had a PM right on the product side and then a corresponding sales DRI. And that sales DRI was responsible for collecting all feedback and all examples 
for that specific product and shuttling them over to the product team once a week or every, every two weeks. And that sales liaison was actually in the product meetings with the product team every two weeks as well. So not only were they giving information, they were also ingesting product updates. Here's where the bugs were. Here's what they're doing next. Here's the new timeline on the roadmap. So you also don't have salespeople pinging product for roadmap updates constantly, which as you can imagine, uh, they don't love those constant requests. But salespeople also don't love product managers coming in and saying, hey, can you give me an example of this? And who wants this? And where do these data sit? So those DRIs, eventually we had almost 40 of them for different products or sub-products or features. And it kept all the information very organized. And if anyone on the sales team had a question about, I don't know, product X, you would go to the DRI of product X and there would be a wiki set up as well where all that information was kept. So very important to keep the information sitting in a passive sense so that people can query it when necessary, aggregate it on a monthly or quarterly level, but then set up a really consistent tactical level cadence where possible so that there's always information going back and forth on a, on a pretty frequent basis. And as you're receiving that feedback and sharing it with the, with the product team, as a product team, how do you decide what feedback you should pay attention to versus what's noise and not useful? Noise tends to come out in two ways. So either number one, there tends to be patterns that don't fit, right? The, the, the narrative of the business should have some understanding of what we're, where we're trying to go. So when you start to see some of these kind of one-offs, like, okay, that, that might not be noise, but it may be something we can ignore because it's there, but it might not actually be relevant to what we're trying to do. doesn't mean to ignore it forever, but at least for now, it's not going to be relevant. The second side, side is you should be able to measure all of that feedback or to at least apply some level of objective stack ranking or prioritization based on whatever your key metrics are as a business. Is it user acquisition? Is it, again, cost efficiency? Is it revenue? Is it profit? Revenue and profit don't always go together. Um, is it sheer volume? Is it consumption? Is it monthly active users? Is it engagement per day? You have to know your metrics. And all those feature requests or all those opportunity requests should have some objective numerical quantitative measure attached to them. So that if you say, okay, what are the most important things we could build that deliver X, you should be able to rank those. Now, that means you're not going to build other things that may give you other benefits, but that's where you need to have a strategic conversation about what's important, when is it important, and how do we rank things? Because eventually you're going to have to draw the line somewhere. And again, I think a sales or revenue team should be responsible for attaching a lot of those dollar amounts to these opportunities. And the product team is, is really responsible for determining that prioritization and then also asking itself, well, if we build A, what does that also enable us to build afterwards? Right Again, thinking in platform scale sense. Or, hey, we could build A, but A is never going to scale to anything more than A. So do we really think that's a place where we want to put a lot of product prioritization? Maybe, maybe not. But those are fun conversations to be able to have. And do you weight different pieces of feedback based on where that feedback is coming from? Like I imagine feedback from a, a five-year customer who's using a lot of the product and is kind of a dead center of the kind of customer that you want might be more valuable than a brand new customer who's still fairly getting used to your product. Like, do you, do you have different weights that you assign to different feedback or is it is it more of this kind of dollar weighting that you use instead? Again, what's the strategy, right? If you say this linchpin five-year customer is going to help us launch this new product and they're going to be our launch customer and to do it, we need to do A, that, that's a very different conversation than 
this customer's not going anywhere. Like this is, yes, I understand their features important, but like it's, we're trying to go launch Europe or Asia or whatever. Like that's more important than what five-year customer wants, who we know is going to be here for another five years anyway. So you've got to be pretty ruthless sometimes looking at both sides in a, in a constrained environment, which every product team is constrained. Right now, teams are more constrained than ever you know, with budgets where they are and with kind of the macro uncertainty. So you've really got to know what you're optimizing against. But if it's a brand new customer that's not going to get you anywhere and they're requesting a feature, yeah, you put that feature request at the bottom of the list because, hey, there's no guarantee if you build it, they're going to sign or deliver what they say they're going to anyway. And B, sometimes there are just many more important things. But you want to pay attention to the signal because that one, this to your question before about noise, that one piece of data may be on an island for a little bit. But you know what? Three months later, you may get another request that looks the same. And then another one. And then another one. And all of a sudden, you have not just a pattern here, you now have a trend. And that trend is something to pay very close attention to and determine, is this trend sustainable? Is this an ephemeral trend? Is this a blip caused by something in the market that we could ignore because the macro will change? And that's where you've got to put the subjective hat on it and take out the consulting brain to figure out like what could be driving this and do we care? And how important is that to the long-term nature of what we're trying to do? Building on the macro environment, when you are in an environment like this where times are a little bit slower, budgets are getting constrained, how do you continue to build your sales team and improve as just an, as a sales organization? There are places in your revenue stack that you can predictably go invest in. Now, to me, the, the definition of an ideal revenue team is it's got to be profitable, right? it's got to be repeatable, it's got to be predictable, and it's got to be scalable. And if you have a part of the team that's not profitable, it's probably not where you're going to go invest in the short term, right? Because maybe, again, growth at all costs is not the goal. But if it is, and you've got plenty of money, then maybe you can keep investing there and get to the other side. Number two, is it repeatable? Okay, repeatable sales success and revenue channels are, at least in the world of like very senior revenue management, that, that's your, your kind of step one of stability. Basically saying, okay, we've won customers in this sector already. Let's just keep going after that sector because we can get some level of repeatability here. And you know what? If we can keep repeating it, it becomes very predictable because then it says, okay, I know what got us to win that sector. So if it worked in, if A worked in that sector, maybe B will work in this other sector. And then you start to go grow B and confirm that that repeatability becomes predictable year over year after year. The last is scalability, which is finding the teams that you have that you've already built all the infrastructure and therefore the marginal cost of every new headcount is going to go way down. Again, what would cause that? It could be you've got a nice referrals channel coming from one sector that you know, well, they're high probability wins, they're low cost of acquisition, low cost to support. That's a place that you want to keep growing because, again, you can show that ROI. Where I think sales teams are going to struggle right now is new markets, new product lines, new verticals that don't have really clear signs of repeatability or predictability to go after them because you'll never get to scalability in a resource-constrained environment like that. Not now because you won't give it enough resourcing to build the foundation to be able to scale on it later. So uh, that's how I just start to break apart a lot of revenue orgs. The benefit of a sales team in almost any way is that every headcount has a dollar attached to it. Either a dollar it's responsible for 
a dollar it costs or a dollar it's required to produce for the business. And I think that's um, it's a it's an objective way of being able to either prove the team's worth or to know that you can't ask for more resources because the unit economics are not in the place you know that the business can sustain at that time. Yeah, and building on the revenue organization piece, one concept you've talked about before is that the sales org is kind of the brains of a revenue organization. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Just like we talked with sales ops before, the sales team is is speaking to future customers, right? It's handing over customers to account management or or customer success that what they're going to do next after they launch, if anything, right? Maybe they're they they're one and done purchases or you know what their growth plan is along the way. And sales teams are also losing deals, right? So they're speaking to customers who, are, who want something here and your company is delivering here. Well, do we want to go deliver this? Or do we just say, no, we're going to always lose that, right? Or you know what, over time, we need to expand our product set to now be able to ta- tackle these different types of customers. And what a sales team is really good at, again, is you can measure this along the way. You can see where you're losing deals. You can see where you're winning deals. You can see the profile of these deals. That feedback loop should be going back to marketing and to product, right? Marketing to be able to go get me more of these because we know what's winning here. And to product, hey, customers love this. They hate this. They love this. They hate this. And that cycle needs to be very transparent as well. Where does it all start? Again, it starts with the customer. If you go back to Jeff Bezos, it was 2002 or three where he introduced the, the, the concept of the customer at the table. And he put this empty chair at a table and said, you know, what does the customer think or what would the customer say? And who knows how much of that is folklore or, or truth? You never know. But if you're a customer-centric business, which most attest to be, then you've got to start and end with what the market wants and what the market needs, while also thinking ahead is what the market will need. And you may be wrong at some percentage of time. But you want to ideally try to stay ahead. And the sales team tends to be kind of the, the, the panel at which all of that information gets thrown along the way. So being able to organize it, consolidate it, synthesize it, and share it is really important. One last question for prior to closing questions. If you're a CEO who wants to get more involved in sales or just at least learn a bit more about that process within your company, what are some helpful and productive ways to take part in the sales team and sales org without being distracting or disruptive or affecting a process in a negative way? The simplest is to shadow. And sometimes bringing a CEO on a call can be uh, daunting. At the same time, it can be incredibly distracting for the customer. So we actually sometimes used to have um, pseudonyms for our CEOs joining certain calls, especially when your CEO was Jack Dorsey. You know, although, or sometimes we would put Jack on and say, hey, Jack Dorsey's on this call. with us and he wouldn't say anything, but customers would sometimes be starstruck on that call. But I think shadowing is such a critical element. We also used to have the board shadow calls. And there was a very senior member of the board who was 40 years experience in tech, who literally looked over to me after finishing a shadow call with a very junior salesperson and said, holy shit, this is really hard. (laughs) And it's like, wow, yes, it is. It is. It's really complicated. And not every call is positive. And we actually had the co-founder of Square on a call where the customer was complaining constantly about something. And he's like, this is all really valid. He's like, I hope we're doing something about this. And you know, to have a board member say that I think is not only validating to the salesperson, but it's levels of insight that they're never going to get on their own. Uh, so shadowing, I think, is key. I think the second 
have is from a CEO perspective specifically, what are those key strategic metrics? And if you don't have them, that's a big wake-up call for the business anyway, whether you call them KPIs or if they're embedded in OKRs. But those are the questions that the CEO should be able to answer at all times through data. And the sales team should be able to provide data into those KPIs and metrics at all times. And getting alignment there to make sure that what the sales team is doing aligns with what the CEO thinks the business should be doing is simple, but I don't see enough of it sometimes. And that alignment is where market teams start to fall apart when that falls you know, out of alignment itself. Moving to closing questions, what strongly held belief have you changed your mind on? I used to not want to hire generalists, I'll say that. And I used to think salespeople had to come from sales to be good at sales. Some of the most amazing salespeople I've ever had were consultants or investment bankers because they were, again, they were in charge of just getting into the nitty gritty, understanding of business from the ground up, which enabled them to design that key I talked about before that unlocks the lock. And that was a, a very important wake up call for me to have much earlier in my career, thankfully, because I think it opened the net and has enabled you know, us to hire people over the years that have come from non-traditional backgrounds, but who have become amazing salespeople and sales managers. And in a technical environment, getting people that come from a more technical place is actually really, really good to have on the sales side. And that's been really valuable for us over the years. Yeah, those are great ones. What's the best business you've ever seen? It, it's going to sound so trite, but I would love to find someone, find me a better business than Apple and what they do and how they do it. And I don't think it's their products. I don't think an iPhone is the best phone in the world, although I wouldn't give mine up. I don't think MacBooks are the best Macs. But when you look at a flywheel and one part that feeds the next, that feeds the next, that feeds the next, and it just keeps you in that loop, that's what the App Store was. And that's what iTunes was. And all these different features that, in, that were built over time really built an ecosystem. And an ecosystem is, is very hard to build from the ground up. And they did it. I'll give you a, a second runner-up, which is also probably equally as trite, which is a company that cannot help but just mint money, and that's Microsoft. And Microsoft was a dinosaur and went through its kind of extinction phase you know, for a bit. And you look at a company that just, just does not know how to do anything but make money and build really sticky, really complex technology that doesn't go anywhere inside the enterprise world. There's no one better. And I've never met smarter salespeople in my life than the 20, 30-year vets who come out of Microsoft and they get paid insane amounts of money. And they deserve every penny of it because the, the money they bring in is 10x what they're being paid. And I, I have yet to find a better enterprise sales business than, than Microsoft. Of the companies you study for best practices and just inspiration for running a good sales org, is Microsoft among them, among maybe a couple others? Yeah, it's a little unfair when you have the name Microsoft behind you because some of your sale is definitely because it's Microsoft or because you're running on .NET servers or because you use a different part of their ecosystem that this just now bolts really nicely onto. So there's some level of like self-fulfillment right, to that. I think Google deals with some of that on the software side. If you're an Apple shop, it's really hard to convince someone to come in and replace your, your MacBook with, with a ThinkPad. So what Microsoft does so well is it, it hires really smart, smart people into sales roles, and it pays them absurdly well. So they don't want to go anywhere. And if you don't perform, by the way, they fire you very quickly. <laughs> so that's not a good environment for everyone. And I get that, right? But they're ruthless about performance, and they're ruthless about paying their top people 
a ton of money, but it's also a very calculated sales process. It's very programmatic. It's very specific. It's very detailed. And it's, it's come from 30, 40 years of experience having sold many of the same products over that, those decades. Not every company, like we don't have that luxury. There's no playbook for us to follow. There's no one who stepped in our footsteps beforehand that we can go copy. So for us, we're always kind of feeling around the amorphous dark. Whereas Microsoft is very, very programmatic, and I think they do it better than almost anyone. Yeah, it's fantastic. What other companies do you study and admire for their sales orgs? I think you look at... There, there are two worlds that have kind of popped up over the probably the past decade, right? There's your really predictable SaaS companies that have a product or a, a software or whatever it is that, that you don't want to ever not have again. Right. So they've almost taken this world of like f- freemium and consumption based demand and scaled it into, you know, amazing SaaS. I think Slack is a great example of that. I, you know, now they're, they're obviously part of, of Salesforce, but I think Slack was that. You look at what AWS was when it built where I remember my friend sitting at a diner table 15 years ago. He's like, oh, hold on, let me spin up another server. I was like, this is brilliant that you can do this. So I think AWS and Slack were two on that kind of consumption freemium level that I think really exploded. I think on the other side, you look at like hyper-predictive monthly fees and you know your enterprise software world. You look at what Workday has done. You look at what MuleSoft did before they also got acquired by uh, Salesforce. You look what Snowflake is doing right now. There are some amazing examples out there. And these companies have you know taken their own paths. But those are the ones that I would continue to keep an eye on. Those are great. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, for coming on the podcast. It's great to chat about sales um, and hear all about the different things you've learned over a, a great sales career. So thank you for sharing a little bit more. I'm glad Mike was able to introduce us. Yeah, great time. Appreciate it. Appreciate all the questions. And, and thanks for uh, letting me join you today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakborn Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. Mm-hmm.